This is Brian Schechter, co-founder, CEO at SelfMade. You're here for SelfMade Stories and part two of our conversation with Dave Heath, co-founder and CEO at Bombas. You had like a big moment where you sold part of the business. Is that right? Is that Correct. Last year. You know, we we sold a, a majority stake, a little bit over half, um, to a private equity firm, uh, Great Hill Partners up in Boston. Um, incredible, incredible partners. I am so grateful and fortunate for that opportunity. They have been game-changing in the way that we think about really scaling the business because we had never taken a lot of capital. Mm-hmm. We never had venture investors, so we never had a board, right? We were kind of just doing all this stuff on our own up until this point. Um, you know, I think certain bit of skill, certain bit of luck, um, but they've really helped professionalize the organization and also convince us to like lean in a little harder. I think the reason that we were able to scale to 100 million off of 4 million of capital raised is that we were so laser focused on efficiency, mm-hmm. particularly in marketing. Um, you know, we were ROAS positive on first purchase from day one, right? And And the lessons that I had learned from you know, unfortunately, the brands that had come before me, um, you know, the Birch Boxes, the Guilt Groups, the Fab.coms, the Bonobos, you know, the, you know, the, some of the brands that didn't have a similar outcome had to raise a ton of capital to make a lot of the learnings. We learned early on that LTV, if you focus on LTV too early on without the correct, without enough data, um, you can end up chasing this, this, you know, this, this number that will never materialize just so that people let, uh, let me say what i think sure. you're you're saying there and you can correct me or add on to it because i think it's really important that people don't fully appreciate because we so often look at the new fundraise yep. but the list of d to c businesses that had these really high-flying moments in terms of raising over 100 million dollars getting to half billion or billion dollar valuation that you just went through of fab of guilt of uh birch box that literally ended up having to fire sale a fire sale and that none of the team got in i mean zero yeah zero and it's it's because the the venture dollars get the money first and the venture dollars have this orientation around growth that they'll look at the LTV of how much money you're going to make over time from a customer and then based operating off of that number. Correct. So you then pummel in and say $100 because it's like, well, within 24 months, I'm going to get a, I'm going to get 150. That's fine because I'm not worried about my cash flow. But then it ends up being, well, you only got 102 and all the expenses really add on, make the CAC 115. So you've been just burning money. Burning. To create revenue. Right. And so you had a really different experience by raising such a small amount of money and that you're growing with profit. Correct. Correct. And, and, and let me simplify it a little bit more because this is the thing that I don't think people understand. And this is what, you know, whenever I meet with early stage, you know, consumer businesses, look, consumer businesses aren't new, right? They've been around, you know, for hundreds of years. And the way that consumer businesses work is you buy a product for X, you sell it for Y, and the margin that you make between X and Y is what ultimately should fund growth and drive profit to the bottom line. If you take that simple tried and true formula and you apply it to digital, you know it, it shouldn't be any different, right? So you make a product for 50 bucks, you sell it for $100, you have $50 to work with to acquire a customer, 
and then cover your OPEX and then you know drive profitability. If your focus is on growth, which ours was, you can use fundraising to bridge the gap of covering OPEX. But from a unit economic standpoint, the fundamentals have to work for long-term sustainable growth, at least the way that we viewed it, was if we spend the, op- the, the contribution margin that we have on the product, so again, make a product for 50, sell it for 100, our, thought, our, our hypothesis, which ended up working, was we are willing to spend up to $50 to acquire a customer, break even on first purchase, knowing that in our business with something like socks, you know, it's a wear through item, should have a high degree of repeatability if the product is good, which we knew it was. Um, we will then become profitable when those people come back in month three, six, 12, whatever it was. So your, your sort of very simple framework was we can spend our margin mm-hmm. on the first purchase mm-hmm. and that's it. Mm-hmm. Not a dollar over. And I, and I think it's important also that, that with socks, it makes total sense in terms of if people like the socks, they will buy a lot of them. Correct. Casper mattresses, for instance, right? Make the product for 400, sell it for 800. I'm using, I don't know their numbers, but yeah. I'm using you know simple math. The likelihood that someone's going to come back and buy two, three, four, five mattresses in the next 12 to 18 months is pretty low. So if I'm running that business, like I want to acquire customers for under four hundred dollars, right? I want to meaningfully. I, I want to meaningfully because I want to figure out what my opex is, and let's say my opex is twenty percent. So then I want to make sure that you know twenty percent of that four hundred dollars of of margin is going to cover my opex, and then I'm going to build in some money for profitability. So what I really want to do is try to target acquiring my customers for like two hundred bucks. We just last the last podcast that we had was with this um, this woman who is um, she's a really into profit first specifically for small businesses where you you literally create accounts first you have to put into taxes then you have to put into profit Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can put into the others and that is it's it's like a it's a method she's like a trained profit first person (laughs) that has worked with thousands of small businesses trying to teach this methodology and it was fascinating to hear her describe it because it's so far from the venture model but so applicable to you know most 90 percent of our customers are not venture backed and they're all trying to figure out how to do it oftentimes trying to figure out how do i get more money right some are get really good at figuring out you know um different types of debt instruments to be able to fund growth at work some have figured out venture some just keep on growing but it's 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 very hard to grow an e-commerce business. And your story is, I think, really illustrative of that because of all the different things that came together, Um, some through good luck, some through a lot of lessons that you had learned through, you know, you really brought a lot to this. And and, and I want to be clear to say that it, you know, there is there is inherent risk with starting yeah. a business, right? It's not like there, there's no formula. You know, I, there's formulas to uh, you know there's or there's there's, there's principles principles to apply, to apply yeah. but this, just because you apply those principles doesn't mean it's going to work, yeah, right? Like I that's mean, why a lot of businesses fail because fundamentally either there's no product market fit, the consumer doesn't care, the price point is off, whatever it is, right? It's it's but there are also the fundamentals which you have to do along with all of those other things in order to get success. And I'm sure for you, like now we're looking back on it and it's like it's really nice it's the, all the things coming together. But there must have been many moments along the way, or at least some moments along the way, that you were already going where you were like, "Fuck, I don't know." 
<laughs> I feel like every Q4 feels that way for us. So we do, we're a business that does 60% of our revenue in November and December, wow. which is incredibly terrifying yeah. and, and stressful every single year because you make or break your year, um, you know, in a couple months. We always say that a bad January can be negated by one good day in November, <laughs> like to the volume that we do. Um, so our whole year is a prep up to that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are there are tons of moments, and and I think you know I, I can you know one specifically you know I remember I think this was 2016, uh, July August we were I think 70 or 80 percent of our spend was on Facebook, and anybody who was running a DTC business at the time will remember this very vividly. Facebook changed their ads algorithm. And through and, and it threw all of the it threw the entire auction platform like way off, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden like CPAs spiked by like double, and we were like, "Holy shit! What we were spending before we can't spend, and like our revenue just like got cut by like forty percent." And if this is the trend, you know, heading into the rest of the year, we're like screwed. And it was this like terrifying moment because it was out of our control, and so that was a lesson learned in in diversifying marketing spend channels so that you're not so heavily influenced by, by a single one. What but is your mix now? We are about uh, 30% Facebook, 20% TV. I gotta make sure I do the math correctly. Um, that's 50, 20% search, 70, uh, 15% audio. So that's podcast, terrestrial, and serious. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think it's like 5% out of home. And then the, the remaining 10% is made up of like Taboola and Outbreak, you know, some yeah. you know, live intent and some smaller, you know, um, you know, things where like the smaller parts add up to, you know, something. That's great. And Kate is still going. Kate's our CMO now oh, and amazing. crushes it. She manages a, you know, a very big budget. <laughs> that is awesome. It is a very big budget. What's coming now for you with with a big couple months ahead? We're we're at this very interesting inflection point in the business where for the last five and a half years we were a single product socks on a single channel of distribution, our own website, um, and over the last twelve months we've uh, we introduced wholesale in a kind of small way due to you know a ton of inbound demand, uh, knowing that if we want to ultimately be that billion dollar now that I see the line of sight to being a billion dollar brand. Um, understanding that omni-channel is really the only way to get there in the next five to seven years. Um, so we're dipping our toe in wholesale, doing the learnings, figuring out which partners are right to work with, figuring out how do we tell our story in, in kind of a physical environment versus mm-hmm. that we don't have control over versus the unlimited palette that we have online to tell show videos and amazing you know photographs and tell stories. Um, new product categories. So we launched t-shirts in April of this year. Uh, we just launched sweatpants and sweatshirts last week. Uh, we'll be launching other product categories coming uh, in early 2020. Um, and then we're talking about international um, and then eventually our own retail stores. So, you know, we went from single product, single channel to multi-product, multi-channel, multi-geographic. <laughs> and what is the brand? Like, describe the brand to me. Yeah. So Bombas is uh, is a comfort-focused apparel brand um, with, you know, predominantly direct-to-consumer. Uh, that gives back clothing items to those in need. So for every uh, item that we sell, we donate an equivalent item 
to the homeless community. Uh, socks being the number one most requested item, underwear being number two, so there's a wink and a nod as to what might be coming down the road there. Um, tees being number three, they're all three wear through items, the most requested items. And so, um, you know, we're figuring out our donation strategy going forward as we start to maybe explore athletic y type of items. We're obviously not going to, if we ever made a running short, we're not going to donate a pair of running shorts to the homeless community. We can figure out, you know, is it a pair of underwear, right? Or is it a, you know, something else that they need? Um, but the brand is, is rooted in altruism. Um, the word bombus is, is derived from the Latin word for bumblebee. Uh, bees are our spirit animal, it's our logo. Um, our tagline is be better. Um, bees are altruistic animals. They work together as a hive to make their world a better place. That applies both to our company culture uh, as well as to how we treat our customers as well as to how do we treat um, our, our non-paying customers of the homeless community. Um, and I think that that mentality has really resonated all the way through. And I think of everything that's outwardly facing, obviously there's a ton of pride in our growth and, you know, uh, we just donated our 25 millionth pair of socks to the homeless community. We have 2,700 giving partners throughout the country that that rely on us to give them, you know, socks every, uh, you know, every, every month. Um, But the stuff that doesn't make it outwardly facing is, and probably the thing I'm, I'm almost most proud of is the culture that we've built um, you know, we've 130 employees been in business for six years and we've only had, ever had four people voluntarily leave. And of those four, only one person left for another job. Uh, the other three left for, um, you know, to go back at their school or move closer to home. Um, and that is, I think, a testament also to our efficiency and how we've grown. Um, we've never suffered from turnover. <laughs> so uh, we're a super, super tight knit team that is very, very good at working together. Since charitable giving is such a central piece of the business how do you model that it was kind of in the dna of our business from day one right it it was the catalyst for the idea right i didn't want i didn't say i wanted to start a sock company right Mm -hmm. i start out because i wanted to solve this problem in my community um and so when we first thought about building the financial model which i think any pragmatic entrepreneur that's where you should start um, we had to figure out if we could f- make the margins work. And so from day one, um, we you know, said, okay, for every sock we sell, we're going to sell another, you know, donate another sock. And um, at this, at, when we started, it was the same sock, you know, which helped give us economies of scale. But over time, we actually realized that there was a better sock to donate for the homeless community, you know, one that didn't have colors, right? They wanted, you know, darker colors to minimize visible wear. We added an antimicrobial treatment. We reinforced the seams so they last longer. And now when we're producing, you know, 10 million pairs of our donation sock, that becomes a much, you know, we get so massive economies of scale and efficiency is that that becomes a much lower cost item for us, even though the product quality is is equal, if not better um, than our, our core product. But we just modeled it in, right? We never, there was never a world in which Bombas existed without making that a part of what we do. Um, and it's actually, in, in some ways, it's been a great lever for us because, you know, anytime we've had, you know, leftover size runs or bought inventory, you know, we can find the right donation partners to, you know, so if we have too many dress socks, we do a work readyman program. So, you know, we'll find people who work in the homeless community that help get people, you know, jobs and, you know, um, give them our dress socks. If we have too many kids, we work with, you know, at risk youth and so, so on and so forth. So it's actually become a really great 
financial mechanism so we never have to go on sale. Um, you know, we never have to like sit on debt inventory. We never have to put it through things like TJ Maxx. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's just been built in from, from day one. And that's part of also having a high margin product. Yes. I mean, it's totally, totally. I mean, if you made cars, you couldn't donate a car for every car you sold. You know, it's a low margin business. It's not going to work. But apparel has high margins and generally so. And socks in particular. Socks in particular, probably the highest margin category of, of any apparel item. As you move into these new items, are you like, well, that's that's a lot of the... It's taken a hit on our IMUs, but again, in early days... What, what are IMUs? So um, I actually don't even know what it stands for, but it's basically like margin. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's, 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 it's like with the merchants and plannings on uh-huh. our teams this is what they always talk about. So it's the first thing that came <laughs> to my head. Um, it's like initial markup, I think is what it stands for. Um is uh, is basically your margin Got that you it. have, um, but you know if we're introducing a product that has a lower margin, but it represents five to ten percent of our business, our ninety percent sock business at such large scale can help support that until that business gets to scale, and yep. then hopefully we get those same efficiencies uh, as we go forward. People come to you often looking for advice mm-hmm. on how to build a successful D2C e-commerce business. Yep. We've gotten some of the tidbits of advice. What what to you sometimes when someone comes makes you think they're going to figure this out? The the will to learn, right? And the and the and the desire to be super scrappy. Um, you know, I think when I meet entrepreneurs that either think they have all the answers or um, think that they'll just figure it all out. Like, I don't know, we'll just start and we'll figure it all out. Rather, those who are very diligent about the process of learning and saying, okay, I don't, I've got this question or there's this part of the business that I don't understand. Before I dive into it, I'm going to go out and try to learn everything I can to know about it. I want to learn from the people who have done it really well. I want to learn from the people who have done it really poorly. I want to learn from the successes, the failures. And then I want to figure out how to take what I've learned from them and then apply it to my business um, in a very pragmatic and practical way. The people who keep asking a lot of questions mm-hmm. are the ones that I, I think, you know, uh, I, I generally have a sense for, you know, are going to figure it out because that that's what being an entrepreneur is right like you have a problem you figure it out you have another problem you figure it out right you're just like a series of of ongoing problem solving and you know when you've never done it before um you know i didn't know what it was going to be like onboarding 70 people in a six month period of time but like we figured it out right because we talked to other people we i called jeff Rader at harry's and was like what was it like when you scaled you know i'm still leaning on people who've done it before me, right? I'm not, I I take zero, I take all of my ego, I take all of my pride, I put it into a box and I become super vulnerable and I say like, I don't know what I'm doing. What do I do? How do I figure this out? What, you know, here's my problem here, you know, here are my questions. What have you done? How can I apply what you've done to what I'm doing? For someone just getting going right now is in a saturated space. Um, and they may not even be wanting to get to a $50 million business. They just they want to get to a, a, a business that supports their life. Sure. Uh, like but by the way, there's no sh- uh, this is the other thing. There's no shame in running. A, I, I have plenty of friends that run $6 million businesses who make a million and a half dollars a year. Mm-hmm. Right? Like the, the, the idea, and this is, again, I think like the, the, sh- the shame of the venture world or, or the, you know, the, you know, 
what I don't like that they've done is they've prophesized that in order to be successful, you have to have a billion dollar brand, right? It has to be worth a billion dollars or else like, who cares? Oh yeah, small, you know, you're running your small little business over there. That's bullshit, right? I know plenty of small business owners who work the life that they want to work. They don't, you know, they're not working, you know, seven days a week. You know, they go and spend plenty of time with their friends and family and still make enough money to live comfortably and actually have a really great life. And you don't need to be, honestly, you don't need to make a million dollars a year to have a really, like, you make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and have a really great life. So, okay. So for the, that person, I, so that, that represents, I think, the, the majority of the people that we work with. Mm-hmm. They get so um, stretched thin in terms of the number of different things that are competing for their focus. Is like there's and there's like a hierarchy of things that you could go after, and it's very stage specific. But if you were to sort of be sitting down with someone, what's the first thing that you want to understand about their business to begin assessing where they what's what matters most for them? Sure. I mean, the the general piece of advice that it's going to underpin what yeah. what I'll go into here is is this is the idea around just focus, right? Especially when you have no resources or limited resources, the resources are you and maybe a few other people and not a lot of dollars. Um, being really good at one thing and figuring out that one problem um, and then moving on to the next thing is is so crucial to, I think, growing any early stage business. Um, again, some of the best advice I got from you know Blake Markowski, who's the founder of Tom's, who's so grateful to give me a piece of his time early on. And... I remember, I'll never forget this. He said, we sold one silhouette of a shoe in four colors for the first three and a half years, right? And built a very big business off of that. You don't need to get distracted about, you know, being here and being there or, you know, we, this product's not working. So we're going to develop another product and put it, it's like really, really just invest in one thing, try to tell one story. The customer can't, you know, they can only absorb so many, you know, features and benefits. Or st- it's like Warby is a great example, too. They started with $99 eyewear, try at home, free returns, you know, the technology platform of like seeing what the, and then they had the one for one movement. They ended up, while they still do one for one, they dropped it from their brand messaging because it started to become too much. Um, so if I'm sitting down with an entrepreneur first time, I want to understand, first of all, you know, what have they what have they learned so far that's working right what customers are the you know who's buying their product mm-hmm. why do they love it right mm-hmm. where did they hear about it um and then you know figure out what triggered them to buy um and then kind of going trying to go as deep into that so let's say it's you know moms on facebook right try before you start to try to go after you know, the young kids or, you know, be on Instagram stories or be on TikTok or the next new platform that's coming out, try to go super, super, super deep and focused into that one area until you've kind of tapped out on, you know, the growth opportunity there and then move to the next hypothesis. Again, it's, it goes back to this idea of, of setting a series of hypotheses based on the information that you have directionally and then trying to prove out those hypotheses at scale. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. I think it does. Okay. It's it's the. I mean, where you went was was uh, in addition to this, the meta thing around focus is who who's buying this? Like, who's your customer right now? And really understanding that um, and how they're learning about it. And, and an important point on that is 
And this is the beauty of D2C, right? Is because like you have that direct relationship with your customer is who is your customer, not who do you like back in the day when you start a business, you'd always say, like, well, here's the demographic of customer that I want to go after. I think what's I mean, it's a lesson that we learned in direct to consumer is that sometimes the customer, you know, will dictate who they are to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we had set out being young 30 year old guys living in New York City, wanting to create this hip, cool brand among, you know, millennials and, you know, 20 somethings where, you know, Bombas socks are going to be the hot, cool thing on every college campus and whatever. And you know what it was? Men and women over 40 years old, you know, buying for their household, their kids wear it, they wear it, you know, they see it as as being aspirationally young, you know, as a way to kind of stay cool and relevant. Yeah, we have some demos in the, you know, in the 20s and teens and 30s, but like our core demo is high income, you know, high disposable income, college educated, you know, urban in these, you know, uh, who care about brand and product. And so we naturally leaned into that rather than like saying like, oh, well, that's a subset of our customer base. But really who we are is like we want to be like a celebrity brand and we want we just leaned really heavy into what the data was telling us, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and I find that, you know, Warby will tell you the same thing. I mean, maybe not, you know, they don't probably market it outwardly, but I remember talking to them early on and they were like women over 45. That's who our, our core demo is. Mm-hmm. They haven't bought frames in a really long new frames in a really long time. And, you know, they are past the point where they want to spend four or $500 to look cool. They now have an option to spend $99, feel relevant while being a part of a cool brand. And so that's where they're putting their dollars. Mm-hmm. I mean, for some people, it's like just trying to get to that point where they have enough data. That's the, that's the chasm that's yeah. super hard to cross. I mean, that's why, you know, you look at the failure rate. Right. It's most of it happens early on. And this goes back to like... It, it's not always. It's not always going. It's not always going to work, right? Like it's not always going to work. It's very hard to to. Uh, you really can't architect it completely beforehand. You can just follow a set of these types of principles that we're talking about, right? And then um, I think you have to have an idea. You have to have an idea. Yeah, no, of, and I don't the, mean just an idea for the product. You have to have an idea of who your product product might resonate with, and you start there. So our yeah our our uh, our first principle and the nine principles of uh, uh, building a healthy e-commerce business is finding your white space. Yeah, um, like if I had a dog food brand, I'm not gonna go try to market it to cat people, right? Definitely, that would not work <laughs> so so well. It's it's the it's the it's interesting because it's like it's you think you know what it is, and then you learn a little bit more as you start to actually find it. There's a diligence thing that some people really bring to the table in terms of developing the product and understanding where in the market it plays. Um, and just a passion that has to be coming to create that level of diligence. Like uh, like we've got had this one guy on, on twice now who has this business box so that's a um, shipping, it's like Japanese snacks of the month. Mm. And it's this guy who spent a while in Japan and just fell in love with Japanese cuisine. Just and so he's got that passion around it, and then so much diligence around like, like what would the exceptional box experience be that he just brings to it all the time. Yeah, I mean, you've got to lean into what your natural skill set is. Well, like early on, if that is your only resource. So like Randy 
coming out of Urban Daddy and coming out of the creative agency world is an incredible storyteller, right? He's very, very good with copy. That's his magic sauce. Aaron, who's another one of my co-founders, is like the same thing, but on the design side. So he makes beautiful aesthetic. And so the two of them combined, you know, on the brand side, they're just, we knew that we had brand in our back pocket from day one. You know, my skill set was that like I came from sales and I like understand, I think I understand, you know, customer behavior as a consumer, right? So I see how people are, you know, behaving. And then my other co-founder, my brother, you know, started as our CFO, and he's the reason that we, you know, made it to $100 million with $4 million in the bank because he was so diligent about cash flow and, you know, costing, and we didn't move into fancy, you know, office space, and we didn't make every hire that we wanted to make. So like, we used the skills that we had and leaned into them and then picked up people along the way, like Kate, who was really good at understanding the data side of customers, and then, you know, started to add all the different pieces that layered on. But when your resources are limited, like lean on what you know, try to learn what you don't, and and stay focused on one thing that you're trying to basically prove out. And if that thing doesn't work out, if it doesn't prove out, move on to the next thing. Again, you can only do that so many times until you ultimately have to say like, okay, maybe this just doesn't work, mm-hmm. and then move on to something else. What's what's life like for you these days? Because you're in a very different, you got a 150 person company now. 130. 130 well, person company by the end of the year. What's going on? So this year, and, and kind of just generally, I think we're we're in this incredible stage um, where you know we're starting to get and bring on really specialized talent, mm-hmm. right, at the kind of director level um, throughout different parts of the organization. It was a massive lesson for me and kind of we've we there's this great article called you know letting go of your legos it's a first round capital you can mm-hmm. find it on their blog it's fantastic we send it around to every new hire um one of the things that we learned at urban daddy you know as as amazing and as inspiring as the ceo and founder was he had a really hard time letting things go and he ended up becoming a massive bottleneck and so my focus over the last year is really trying to remove myself from the things, trust the team that I have. Um, and not surprisingly, these people are very good at what they do because you know we're a great organization, we're attracting great talent. And when you hire great talent and then give them the room to run, they will surprise you in the most positive way every single time. Um, so I'm removing myself more from the day-to-day, really spending, trying to shift my focus to thinking about 24, you know, to 36 months out where when you're early on and it's just a few of you, you're thinking day by day, looking at the numbers every single day, and then it moves to week by week, then month by month, then quarter by quarter, then year by year. And now I don't even like really spend a ton of time thinking in the past. That's what my CFO does. I spend my time thinking, okay, how are we going to get from $100 million to $500 million to a billion dollars? And what are the building blocks I have to put in today in order to help make that happen? Mm-hmm. Um and so it's it's fun, you know. It's uh, you know letting go and delegating and, and watching people grow and step up, and you know it, it's probably the most rewarding aspect of all of this. Maybe outside of the the charitable giving side of our brand, but um, so that's what I do. Yeah, and and also I think learning that. I don't have to be involved in everything and that actually it's better for me and for the company for me to actually find time to myself, take vacation, you know, not unplug on the weekends, you know, not work all nighters um, and create that space where I have the ability to really think big picture 
um, and get myself out of the day-to-day, get myself out of my inbox, you know, go for a hike somewhere and just like, what if we did this? You know, big ride ahead. Yeah, <laughs> totally. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's exciting and, you know, it's, it's the, uh, the, the other adage too, which is like, because we're getting bigger, um, you know, it feels way more public and it feels like the stakes are so much higher. Um, but we've got a, you know, a, a amazing team, solid financial foundation. Um, we'll see how some of these things shake out. Excited for you. Thank you. And that's it with our two-part episode of Self-Made Stories with Dave Heath at Bombas. If you enjoyed the episode as much as I did, check out some highlights on our Facebook page. Be sure to sign up for our newsletter so you can stay up to date with all things self-made. And just in general, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to see you share your listening, give us five stars, help us spread the word about what we're doing here at Self-Made Stories. 